welcome to this learning episode of the PJ Pod. Deprescribing has been in the spotlight of late, with the National Overprescribing Review in September 2021 estimating that around 10% of the current volume of medicines dispensed in primary care each year may be overprescribed. But how can this be tackled? Working out when a medicine can potentially be stopped or reduced isn't easy. But in this episode, we aim to help you do just that, with advice from some experienced experts. The fact is that a lot of those guidance, or most of the guidance, is, is not being designed for, for example, people who are in the older stages of life with multiple conditions or multiple other medicines. All of us, clinicians, pharmacies, medics, consultants, all levels of pharmacies, community pharmacies, PCN pharmacies, hospital pharmacies, there is a part for everyone to play. My name is Alex Clevin, and I'm Senior Editor for Research and Learning at the PJ. In this episode, we'll briefly look at the underlying context driving the deprescribing agenda, consider the role and limitations of evidence, and provide you with some practical tips and advice for starting conversations with patients that can help them get the most from their medicines. As ever, there'll be learning objectives and links to additional resources in the show notes. But let's jump right in with our first expert, the man charged of implementing the recommendations of the National Overprescribing Review in England, Tony Avery. So, yeah, I'm Tony Avery. I'm National Clinical Director for Prescribing for NHS England. I'm a GP by background and also Professor of Primary Health Care from the University of Nottingham. I started by asking Tony to put deprescribing into context and explain what it means for patients. I think starting off by recognising that medicines do a lot of good. You know, which is not about stopping medicines that are effective and are helping people, either helping people in terms of controlling their conditions, helping in some cases to prolong life, helping to reduce the risks of them developing serious conditions when they already have one, for example, risks of heart disease, and where patients are wanting some control uh, in terms of their conditions and, and medicines are helping to provide those without undue side effects. So I think that's a really important starting context, but it's also recognizing that for some people, they are on too many medicines, so medicines are causing them difficulties just simply with the burden of, of taking them in the way in which they've been being prescribed. Or they may actually be having side effects from those medicines and sometimes serious side effects. Or the longer term use of these medicines is likely to be uh, resulting in more harm than good. And that's where, at a national level, we are wanting to try and change the balance a little bit towards a greater recognition that some people may be on more medicines than they really, really want or need, and to developing policies to address that. In many respects, deprescribing can be thought of as a component of medicines optimization. It's a question of identifying where the balance lies between the benefits of the patient's medicines measured against the associated risks of side effects and polypharmacy issues. There are also many systemic and cultural factors identified in the overprescribing review, which for some patients can make this balance increasingly difficult to get right. I think what I'd say is, I mean, no one sets out to overprescribe. The issue is that I think going for a prescription could be the thing that we're used to doing, and uh, it's not necessarily always the best thing to be doing. So, you know, actually thinking about alternatives such as lifestyle choices, referral for social prescribing, talking therapies, 
etc. These are things that I'm sure we're all trying to do as much as we can already, but I guess there's been a tendency towards, and still I think, that um, you know, issuing a prescription is one of the most straightforward things we can do as clinicians, particularly in primary care. And there's, I guess, the issue about whether people can sometimes remain on medicines when they're actually not helping them a great deal. So people could be started on things that possibly helping a bit, and so they continued on them. And or you may then find that they seem to have helped a little bit, like, for example, with analgesics. The opioids seem to have helped a bit for the pain, but not enough. They're still getting pain, so you then get a situation where let's... Uh, Let's increase it a little bit and increase it a little bit. And you can find you in a situation where a patient ends up on sometimes, you know, substantial doses of a, of a medication that actually on reflection are probably not really helping them a great deal. Uh, and by the time you get to, say, large doses of opioids are almost certainly doing them more harm than, than good unless they are having a really strong beneficial reaction or that you're using it for a purpose such as... Uh, uh, malignant pain uh, in someone with a terminal illness. Another important component is the dynamic nature of health. As patients progress through different stages of their life, priorities and approach to risk are likely to change. Deprescribing is partly about responding to these changes and taking a holistic view about what's best for the patient overall and entering into shared decision making. I caught up with Lely Obo, who is the overprescribing lead pharmacist for South East London Integrated Care Systems, overseeing work to implement the recommendations from the National Overprescribing Report. Lely is also a consultant pharmacist at Guy's and St Thomas's NHS Trust, specialising in older people and frailty. So when I'm young, and maybe I'm in my 50s, right now, um, you know, if I was thinking about uh, a cardiovascular problem like hypertension, I'm thinking, I really need to get myself you know, I need to lose weight, I need to do this because this would help me and prevent me from having a stroke or whatever in the future. When you start to get to your 80s and you're a bit frail, your the time you have to leave is shorter. So all of a sudden, for that older person, their priorities might start to change. It might no longer be about living for the next 10 years. It's really, you know what, I know I'm not going to be here for more than three years. Can I just enjoy? I might not want to do the side effects. Um, but I might be willing to take a risk about, you know, having that stroke that might or might not happen. And so that is why the conversations need to be different now compared to what we had before. When I have you in front of me, you're a 17-year-old lady who has lost her spouse and you're housebound and you have this, this condition, then the conversation is different because then we get the evidence as a starting point but then we have to say to this person in front of us, what's really important to you? Can you take this medicine? Do you know what I mean? Do you have swallowing problems? Because that's a different thing altogether. Do you have somebody who wants to give you, would you rather go to bingo um, and not have to go to the toilet every single minute when the driver is there? And all these things have to be considered. And if the patient is saying, do you know what? No, you know, I don't want to take this medicine that makes me feel horrible and like I'm headed and I cannot go to my bingo once a week. And that's really important for, for, for an old person who's housebound. Then we have to be challenged to say, is this medicine still appropriate in the circumstances? Bearing in mind that the evidence we have might not be for this little old lady sat in front of me. And that's the conversation we need to have. So it's no longer just about what NICE guidance says, it's about what NICE says, what the patient is saying, 
and my expertise. This idea of evidence being used as a starting point for conversations was something I was curious to learn more about. With so much complexity and variation in circumstances, clinical trial data and NICE guidance can only take us so far, with each deprescribing decision requiring careful judgement tailored to the individual. Clinicians need to develop the ability to reason from first principles using the evidence as a guide rather than the sole source of answers. So one of the drivers which was identified in the National Overprescribing Review was that guidance is produced for, largely for single conditions, and the evidence that goes into that guidance is largely based on people who are relatively fit otherwise at the younger end of the spectrum. And because we have nothing else and that is the guidance we tend to apply those guidelines to patients even if they are outside the parameters of the original trials and when they may have multiple conditions the fact is that a lot of those guidance or most of the guidance is, is not being designed for for example people who are in the older stages of life with multiple conditions or multiple other medicines and so you can have this situation where you are appropriately prescribing according to the guidelines, but when you've got someone with five, six, seven different conditions, that could mean that there aren't eight, 10, 15, or even 20 or more medicines. And you have to ask whether that is, particularly at the extreme ends, whether that is the sensible thing to be doing. It may well be sensible in relation to aspects of cardiovascular prevention, for example. But when you've also got people on multiple analgesics, psychotropic medicines, anticholinergics, you know, we know that's not a good combination. And um, when we look at it from a medicines optimization point of view, clearly we need to be reconsidering, I think, in some of these patients. So in the right circumstances, the rationale for deprescribing seems pretty clear-cut. While there's a need for caution and careful judgement when contemplating a possible reduction in a patient's medicines use, there's also an opportunity for win-win outcomes where the patient's overall health is maintained and their quality of life improves, with the added bonus of saving time and resources for everyone involved. So what do we know about the effectiveness of deprescribing approaches? I asked Tony about what the research tells us and if we've been able to make any conclusions about the effectiveness of deprescribing or to quantify the benefits. So there's been a fair amount of research done, much of it outside the UK, on what you might call deprescribing interventions, taking people who are on multiple medicines and having some sort of intervention, usually pharmacist-led intervention, that involves a detailed review on the medicines they're taking, so what you recall a, a structured medication review working with the patient in most cases and that's certainly something that we strongly advocate in the UK to a position where with agreement with the patient you may be withdrawing some of those medicines it may be actually as a result you may even be adding some but overall you know the intervention is aimed at doing that review to look to see whether there is scope for reducing medicines and overall if you take those studies together the published studies and the systematic reviews of those studies it does show a sort of modest reduction in the number of medicines that people are taking. I think it's worth noting that because the idea that we can have very large scale reductions 
is probably re unrealistic in the real world. There are often good reasons for people being on the medicines that they are on. Sometimes it may be that the health professional, it's certainly the case for me, I, I might sort of think, well, actually, we could stop several of these medicines, but the patient themselves or their carer is not keen on that. So it's both recognising that the changes that occur in these studies are relatively modest, but nevertheless, I think, worthwhile. So, having time and space to hold these high-quality conversations with patients is a key prerequisite for de-prescribing. But time is also something we know is in very short supply. You're absolutely right. Time is what we don't have, and that is really important. You can't just stumble into a patient and ask them all these questions because you must build trust. You know, if my patient comes to me and they're not taking their medicines, they might not want to volunteer that information right at the beginning because they might think I might tell them off. So there is a skill to not be judgmental and to be able to get that. And of course, when people trust you more, they're more likely to do self-disclosure. And that really helps in that a patient and clinician relationship. And a lot of the research papers are just showing more that the higher the level of trust, it has a positive impact on the outcomes for that patient. And there's the um, overprescribing report that just came out. And there's a caption that says, good for you, good for us, and overprescribing is everybody's business. And that's exactly what it is. I think there's a part the patient has to play. I think there's a part that all of us clinicians, pharmacies, medics, consultants, all levels of pharmacies, community pharmacies, PCN pharmacies, hospital pharmacies, there's a part for everyone to play. So for me, yes, I mean, in my practice, sometimes I visit patients' homes and I have an hour to go through everything. And that is ideal. We're not going to get that we see the new structured medication review, maybe about 30 minutes. And then we still have um, reviews that could be 10 minutes. And I think for me, where we can't produce more time, and for me, is how do we make the best use of time? That is why when we're talking of overprescribing and deprescribing, is a multidisciplinary approach that works. So for example, say I'm a community pharmacist and the patient, one of the old people comes to collect their medicines from me. I probably have depends on how long the queue is and what every other person is tending to. Let's say I have five minutes. When I go to dish that medicine out, package it out, I might say to them, I know you've been taking these medicines for a long time. Had you got any concerns? Is there anything you would like to tell me about your medicines or you would like help with your medicines? And they might say yes, and then you can have that short conversation with them. Or it might be that they don't, and I'd say, well, how are you getting on with your blood pressure tablets? Or pain tablets or something and I might just be able to share something in that five minutes or I might say to them have you had your one yearly review with your PCN pharmacist or would you like to come in and so there's always something that we can do to remind or to tell or to ask or to inquire about. Pharmacists can be constantly looking for opportunities to optimise medicines use. Structured reviews and detailed conversations should be the aspiration, but it's still possible to use even the briefest of exchanges to ask good questions and potentially start a conversation off. I asked Lely about how she then approaches these conversations. When you sit down with a patient in a consultation, there are two experts. One expert is you, 
as a, a pharmacist or a medic, whatever. You are the expert on, on the evidence base. So even if you have a patient who knows a lot about their individual condition, as the pharmacist, we know other conditions, we know about the medicines in that for that condition, we know how they interact with other medicines, but also there's another expert in the room and that expert is the patient. And they are the expert on their body and their experience. And so a typical example I always find interesting when I take uh, a younger pharmacist out, I take them to an old person's house. And then the old person would go, I'm taking paracetamol and that's causing me to have an upset stomach. And I can always see that the pharmacist going, no, no, no. Because in the books, paracetamol doesn't cause a stomach uh, problem. It's the anti-inflammatories that cause. And I can see that no, 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 no. But actually, that's what the patient is experiencing. And when they do the research, they do the research, not for that particular patient, for a bunch of people somewhere else that might have no recognition to the patient in front of us. So we don't argue because just because I'm right doesn't mean you're wrong. So just because the book says paracetamol is not the one that gives the stomach ache, it doesn't mean that what the patient is saying is wrong. So rather than trying to argue with the patient and discount them after which they get really irritated and they might just close down on you, or you might be missing a trick because it could be really real, it's then trying to understand and trying to establish, is this that connection? Tell me when you feel this pain. And honestly, even if we can't prove it, we say to them, in the books, it hasn't mentioned it, but it could be that you, what you're saying is true. And it's about having that recognition that, yes, I'm an, an, an expert, but the other person is an expert. So if we truly believe in that, then it means that when we're thinking about an intervention or we are thinking about solutions, then it's easier for us because a problem uh, is a problem shared and that makes the load lighter. And especially because because one of the pressures I find that happens with a, a lot of pharmacists, especially people who are less experienced, is like, I need to come up with all the solutions. And the reality is that people are so complex today that we are just limited in the solutions. The concept of shared decision-making and patient involvement was another important theme to emerge. Both Tony and Lely stressed how important it is to bring the patient with you and make sure decisions are made together. The change is introduced cautiously with a full agreement. A lot hinges on how well the prescribing is explained to patients and helping them understand all the options and their respective risks and benefits. Here, the choice of language can really matter. Think about it. I mean, somebody's done a, a study about uh, de-prescribing and how patients don't particularly like that term, older, frail patients, because they think de-prescribe, stop prescribing. Well, have they given up on me? Am I not worth it? And, and people don't like that term. And I think what we need to do is to mind our language as well. So, you know, one of the uh, common examples I give. So say, for example, you were on taking um, strong painkillers or opiates, for example. We know they're addictive, we know they don't work, that's what the research says. And especially after the equivalent of 120 milligrams of morphine, really what you're getting, there's no benefits absolutely for in long term, I'm talking of chronic pain, no benefits and we're piling on the side effects and we're making you even uh, more addictive to this. So I phone you up and say, um, Alex, um, 
I'm the pharmacist, the evidence is showing that this doesn't work, this doesn't work. Can you come in and let's uh, see how we can stop your medication? In your head, you're thinking, what a silly pharmacist. I'm taking 120, you don't know what it takes for me to get up in the morning. And you want me to come and have a conversation about stopping this. Do you know what? I don't care about side effects right now. I'm not attending. Or when you do attend, the body language. And you're coming because I'm only here because I know if I don't, you're going to stop my repeats and whatever it is. So I would not even mention the word deprescribing because that's not what I'm doing as a pharmacist. What I'm doing as a pharmacist, going back to medicines optimization, is how can I make sure that the medicines that you're taking are giving you the best benefits and not so much about, I mean, I'm reducing the harm. And for me, that's, that's the conversation I'm going to bring you in. And that's the conversation I'm going to be talking about. So there are some clear principles that we can keep in mind when making a judgment about medicines optimization and working with the patient to arrive at a shared decision. But it's also important to remember that pharmacists aren't alone in this. And there's a wider team you can draw on for support when making de-prescribing decisions. And it's the same for GPs as well as pharmacists that actually it takes quite a bit of confidence to make de-prescribing decisions with patients. It's much easier to let sleeping dogs lie and just sort of, okay, okay, fine, we'll just continue with, with everything. And that's where I think support's important for pharmacists not to be feeling they're doing this on their own, that they've got their own groups or communities of practice that they can be working with, they can be discussing things with GPs that ideally within, say, a primary care network or ideally at uh, an in, in integrated care system level, you have some more expertise there, for example, from specialist pharmacists, uh, geriatricians, consultant pharmacologists, for example, um, where you actually can be taking some of these perhaps more challenging and difficult decisions so that actually you're sharing the risk a bit, you're just having that discussion. And that, in a sense, as well, I think doing that can help them build up confidence of anyone who is doing this sort of work. The fear of litigation, the fear that, you know, some specialist has put this patient on this medicine and, oh God, I can't stop it. Um, and those are real genuine things to worry about. But again, there are solutions are uh, coming up with uh, some of the um, recommendations from the overprescribing report and some of them again just like uh, the problem of time um, or the problem of uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen when you change things or when you start things is really about making sure you're watching um, and, and continuously bringing the patient back or uh, contacting them to find out what's happening and you know there's an amazing uh, document saying that just like the same legal principles you apply to prescribe should be the same principles you apply to de-prescribe. So if you, if you fail to prescribe something that a patient needs, it's almost just as bad as not stopping something that they don't need. And, and it's just trying to get people to change their mindsets. But there is a real fear of litigation. What happens if I stop a statin and somebody then goes on to have a stroke? Who, who's going to be to blame. And it's all about recording and how you explain the risks and also how you involve the patient, their consent and all that business. That feels like a good point to end on. With the help of our experts, we've heard about the types of situation where de-prescribing can potentially provide benefits to the patient. I've explored the importance of shared decision-making and patient expertise 
and considered how to use evidence as a tool for helping patients decide what outcomes are most important to them. Of course, with a subject as complex as deep prescribing, there's much more to learn than we've been able to discuss in this episode, and you'll find links to all the resources mentioned, along with relevant PJ articles in the show notes. Our thanks go out to Lely Obo and Tony Avery for their time and expertise. If there is a topic you would like us to explore in a future learning episode, please get in touch through the usual channels. Until next time, thanks for listening, and goodbye.